Good morning. My name is Brandon, one of the pastors here at, um, at Sojourn Heights. As she said, we uh, are in a series in 1 Corinthians, this uh, letter written from a man named Paul to this five-year-old church in the city of Corinth. Um, and there was a presenting issue going on in the church that this presenting issue was that the church was deeply divided, but there was a deeper issue that was presenting itself, and the deeper issue was that this church was being more formed and shaped by the culture of Corinth than they were by Christ. And here in chapter 4, Paul issues what I think is a pretty stern rebuke. But let's begin like this. Finish this for me. Imitation is the best form of? Well done. I wasn't sure if we were going to get that, but we got it, all right? Um, here's the thing, uh, imitation, it's hardwired into humanity. We're, we're born innately, naturally imitating. So think about children. You, you know what none of you have ever said to me? Hey, hey Brandon, your, your son, man, he just, my bad, uh, he, 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 just, he just reminds me of this guy in college. Like, you've never said that to me. But if imitation is hardwired into humanity, what we imitate matters. And so my... My seven and eight-year-old the other day were uh, playing the, you, you, know, you know, the spin game. You put it on, you spin, and then you try to walk, and you, and you do that. You know, we're on the same page? Okay, my 15-month-old thought, oh, that looks fun, uh, and did the spin. I don't know if you've ever seen a 15-month-old try to do that, but it got real ugly real fast. And so what we imitate matters. If you want your child to learn to sing, you don't say, hey, go, go do what Brandon does. <laughs> you've never heard the audio of me singing. You would get that if you did. But here's the question. Here's what I want to ask. Why? Why? Why is imitation the best form of flattery? Why is it the best form of flattery? Here's the answer. Because what we esteem, we imitate. What we esteem, we imitate. And now, in our text, Paul does something, I, I think, very interesting. He says, I've become your father in Christ, therefore imitate me. This, this phrase, father, be your Father, there were inscriptions in the city of Corinth that, that said Julius Caesar, the founding father. And so what Paul is doing is he's picking up on this cultural language. And he's saying, hey, I'm the, I'm the founding father of this church. I founded this church. Therefore, imitate me. And so what I want to do today is I want to ask one simple question. Why the need to say imitate me? What was going on underneath the surface what was sitting underneath the presenting issue that would make Paul say, imitate me, and feel the need to say, imitate me. And since he used this imagery of founding father, I, I think it's appropriate we go back to the beginning of the church, when the church was begun, and start there, start in Acts 18, with a simple question of why the church in Corinth exists in the first place. So that's what we're going to do, Acts 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And when he went to see them, and he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. Let's pause real quick. 
When, when Paul shows up in Corinth, let me tell you what he did. He, he spent his days trying to persuade Jews and the Greeks, the same people that he would write about in the book of 1 Corinthians as contrasting the gospel over here and contrasting the gospel over here were the same people his heart broke for and he spent days and I was trying to persuade. But of what? Let's keep reading. When Silas and Timothy had arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And this is the one you've been looking for. You've been waiting. He's here. He's come. I didn't know either, but I do know now. He's come. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. That's non-Jews. And he left there, and he went to the house of a man that named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said one night in a vision, and this is what I was trying to get us to, to the founding of the church in Corinth. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. Why? Why? For I have many, I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. I want you to meditate on something with me for just a minute. I have many in this city who are my people. Present tense verb. This is not the Lord saying, hey, Paul, I've got many who one day might be. Not they could become one day. Possibly, Paul, if you just stick around here, if your persuasion is good enough, Paul, one day they might be. No, Paul, stay here. Why? I have many in the city who are my people, and they just don't know it yet, Paul. They just don't know it yet. But you know what? They're going to find out through you. Paul, stick around here. Listen, I, I know it's scary right now. Stick around here. I have many in the city who are my people, and they just don't know yet, Paul. But they need to know, and they're going to find out through you. And you know what happened? They did. They did. They found out. And this new little missionary community that we call the church was born. But in five short years, what began to reach Corinth turned into imitating Corinth. Five short years. What began to reach Corinth turned into imitating Corinth. The church in Corinth had undergone a textbook case of what we call mission drift. Mission drift, where you subtly drift from your original why. And here's what I'm wondering. Here's what I'm wondering. Has this happened to us too? Our little sojourn community has mission drift set in here too. Because here's the thing, in Corinth, 
Mission drift did not come from lacking a clear vision and strategy. That's modern stuff. Mission drift didn't come from setting out some core principles and values and structures in those early days that they abandoned and drifted away from. Mission drift didn't even come, we don't have evidence of it right here, of a decreased love for Jesus. Here's what we know it came from. It came from an increased love of the world. It came from an increased esteem of what Corinth had to offer. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering if this hasn't happened subtly to us. I'm wondering if we haven't undergone a slow, subtle drift to loving a little too much what our urban Houston life has to offer. I'm wondering if it hasn't happened to you. And for clarity's sake, when I say us, I mean us. When I say you, I'm part of the you. If so, chapter 4 might be particularly applicable to us, and so let's go. Verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. He's saying right out the gate, hey, listen, church, let me tell you how you should regard us, how you should think of us, servants, stewards, faithful, not skilled celebrity or elite. That is how Corinth treats their leaders, not the body of Christ. We're to be servants, stewards, faithful, and um, Thistleton, commentator, theologian, he, he said that of these two words, the two Greek words that Paul used are suggestive of emphasizing the menial service that a relatively low-level slave might give to his or her master. Point, Paul, Paul is intentionally using words to emphasize I'm the lowly one, the exalted one is Christ, not us, not me, which is why he can go on and say this. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation or his approval from God. So let me summarize. Hey, there's a judgment coming, Corinth. There's a judgment coming that I care about, and when that day gets here, the, the hidden things of the heart will get exposed, and we will receive our approval from God. And because that's the judgment I care about, I don't need your approval. Because that's the approval I'm looking for. I don't need your approval. It, there's a vertical approval that I'm after. I'm not searching for horizontal approval. And can you imagine with me? Can you just imagine for a second how freeing this must be? Like to just unearth, take off our imaginary lives for a second, or pretend like we're not consumed with what others think about us. 
Can you imagine for a moment how freeing this must be to not live your life in need of the esteem and approval of those around us? And I, I know it's easy uh, for some of us to, to look around this room and go, yeah, man, but if I had, like if I had their job or their house or their family or their you fill in the blank, I wouldn't need it either. But here's the deal. Just because you get esteem doesn't mean that you are free from the need of it. Um, Madonna, does anybody listen to, nobody listens to Madonna, right? I don't, I don't even know, but I found this uh, in Vogue. And no, I don't read Vogue either, just for the record. <laughs> found it doing research. I actually found another pastor's sermon, which is problematic possibly for them. I don't know. Um, and I don't know when this was, uh, but in this article in Vogue, she said, even though, even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. Even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. How, how freeing would it be to not have to live trying to prove that I'm somebody. How freeing must that be? But the truth is, I mean, the truth is that I identify with Madonna. Bet you never expect to hear a preacher say that. I do. I, like probably many of you, have deep father wound issues and have spent much of my life trying to fill that relational gap with proving that I'm somebody. If I could bottle up what it's like to not have to live trying to prove that I'm worth something and I could just give it to the rest of you who know what I'm talking about, I would, but I'm in need of you bottling it up and giving it to me. How freeing must it be to not live your life needing the approval of other people? How freeing must that be? I don't know, but here's what I do know. I do know that at the core of mission drift is a care more and a deeper concern for what people think of us than what they think of Christ. I do know that sits at the heart of a drifting church. Deeper concern for what people think of us than what they think of Christ. That we care more about what our neighbors think of our job than what they think of Jesus. Care more about how I rank than the eternal state of my coworker. For Paul, it's I don't need man's approval, but evidence one of mission drift is the deepening concern for what other people think of us. And now he moves on to using um, irony as he gets to it that becomes kind of the means of his direct rebuke. But first in verse six, he says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. Brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. So not to go beyond what's written, that's the Old Testament uh, scriptures. But the um, grammatical question in the text is, what is it linked to? Does this, does this little phrase right here in verse 6 go with what came before or what comes after? And uh, I think that the answer is both. I think the answer is both, especially in the context of what he's saying. It just naturally flows out um, that they, they were adding to the scriptures of man's approval, right? Because what the Lord has to say about us is not enough in the scriptures. I need the scriptures plus Corinth. I need their approval as well. And Calvin, a famous pastor from 500-ish years ago, 
um, looked at it and went, obviously, now when we move into verse 7, this is, what's, this is adding to the gospel. This is a gospel plus Corinth life that they are after. And so in verse 7, he says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Here's the heart of Paul's argument. Here's the heart of what Paul is trying to thrust across. It's this little phrase, what do you have that you did not receive? One commentator looked at these little three rhetorical questions and said, this set of rhetorical questions expresses in a nutshell the central theological truth that the Corinthians. And by the way, they're expanding it out to the entire book of Corinthians, not just chapter four here. Central theological truth that the Corinthians in their divisiveness seem to have forgotten all their abilities, opportunities, and blessings are from God. Paul's point, all you have is a gift from God, but they seem to have forgotten this and division has set in. Because if all that I have is not a gift, right? If it's like gift plus my effort plus what I've earned, then inside of the church, I'm going to look around and wonder how do I rank? Like how do I, how do I stack up? How does my horizontal life measure up to your life? Like why doesn't my house look like your house? Why, why doesn't my retirement account look like your retirement account? It's not fair. And what happens is the competitive, and Corinth was a cutthroat competitive culture, finds its way into the church, and the church eventually starts looking more like Exxon than the body of Christ. And listen, nothing wrong with Exxon, just not how the body of Christ is meant to operate. He's saying Christ is not enough for you, Corinth. You want a Christ plus life. And now Gordon Fee, commentator, I wanted y'all to hear this. With rhetoric full of sarcasm and irony, in verse 8, he goes for the jugular. I hate blood. So it was like a queasy image when I read it, but I wanted you to hear that also. And if you get queasy, I was hopeful. Verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share in your rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. He's saying with irony and sarcasm, hey, you, you want to be kings, do you? You want to be a king, rich, reigning. Here's what you don't want, Corinth. Let me tell you what you don't want. You don't want the humble and lowly life of an apostle. You are above the humble and lowly life of an apostle. You don't want the life of Paul, the father of the church. You want the life of Caesar, the father of your city. You want to be a king. That's what you want. You want the life of an exalted Corinthian king. But when in verse 9 he says, 
that sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. He's referencing this Roman triumphal procession where enemy soldiers were marched through the city before being publicly executed. And he's saying, I think, my beloved Corinth, my beloved Corinth, the life you're living, the, the one that you're just above, above the life of a humble, lowly apostle, you want to be a Corinthian king. The life you're living, it's not the one we taught, it's not the one we modeled. Being esteemed is not what we said to be after. In fact, it's a life foreign to my understanding of the gospel. My beloved Corinth, the values of Corinth are colliding with the values of Jesus in your heart, in your life, and Corinth is winning. Which is what makes verse 11 such a rebuke. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our hands, our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. He's saying, hey, this is, this is what my life looks like, Corinth. You're a king and I'm homeless. You're esteemed and I'm scum. You've got the exalted life, don't you? He's not saying, hey, I think that you ought to go be homeless. He's saying that when I have Christ, I don't need anything else. I have all I need. And so let's, let's talk mission drift again. The church in Corinth, unwilling to live a humble, lowly, and sacrificial life, sits at the heart of mission drift because humble, lowly, and sacrificial is the life of our Savior. It is the death of our Savior. Humble, lowly Savior, dying a humble, lowly death on the cross. And for Paul, I think what Paul understood as well as anybody is that everything he needs today, right now, as I'm speaking, as we are doing this together, all that Paul needs today, he had in Christ then. There was nothing he needed outside of Christ then that he still needs today. He had it all. And so I can maybe bring this forward and try to apply it to us. I think this might be a faithful way of understanding it, that if your job and the money it provides is more about your ease, comfort, aesthetic of your house, or retirement, than it is God's redemptive work where you are in our city then Mission drift has set into your heart. If you are not reflecting the sacrificial life of Christ with all that you have, your life and your money, evidence too of mission drift, or if we treat the church, the bride of Christ, the redeemed in him, like a country club here to meet my needs, here to provide services that I can't get somewhere else rather than communal mission of Jesus 
letting those in our neighborhood and in our city who belong to glory who belong to Christ, who just don't know it yet. Find out through us. If we are more consumed with how the church meets my needs than those around us who belong to him, who need to know that I think we need to collectively repent. We need to fall in line with Paul and put our life under what one theologian called the critique of the cross. The cross where Jesus gave it all away, where he became a fool in the eyes of the world. The one where the way up is down, the way to life is death. I think we need to ask the question of us. Do we believe this and are we willing to put our life under the critique of the cross? Are we? Are we willing to let our life be critiqued by the cross. Do we believe this? Are we willing to look like fools so that Jesus can be seen as beautiful? Has our culture seeped more and more into our heart than we realize? Has it? If so, verse 14. Do not write these things to make you ashamed but to admonish, to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Listen, my, my beloved Corinth, I poured out my life to see you exist. My beloved Corinth, I don't want you to feel shame. I want to instruct you as a good father. You imitating Corinth it is like you playing hide and seek on the freeway, and I want you to get off the freeway and come inside, Corinth. It's dangerous what you're doing. It looks like life. It looks fun, but it leads to death. Every single time, Corinth. Come, come in the house. It's a great game, but just come in the house and play it here. Come and play it where you are safe. Don't imitate Corinth. Imitate me. I'm a father pleading with you. Pleading with you. And listen, it, you, evidence one of where it's led you. Look how divided you are. Some of you think that you follow Christ where other, others follow Apollos and me. You've put us on the same tier. Look how divided you are, Corinth. Get off the freeway. Come inside. Verse 18. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon. If the Lord wills, and I will find out, and I will find out, not to talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in, in talk, but in power. What do you wish? What do you want, Corinth? What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod? Is that what you want? Or with love and a spirit of gentleness? D.A. Carson in this verse, the kingdom of God is not armchair philosophy, but it is the power, power to change, but, but, choice is theirs. 
choices there. The kingdom of God is not armchair philosophy. It is an undeniable power, power to change. But Corinth, the choice is yours. What do you want, Corinth? The choice is yours. You have been living like Corinth, but you don't have to. You have the resurrected life of Christ in you. You have the kingdom of God among you. You have the power to change. What do you want? And Paul, Paul's saying, listen, I'm coming to you, Corinth. I'm going to come. Lord willing, I'm going to show back up. And what do you want? What do you want? Do you want me to bring the discipline of a good father or the love and gentleness of a good father? What do you want, Corinth? What do we want? What do we want? The same question. We're not going to be in the presence of Paul, but we will be in the presence of Christ one day. What do we want? What kind of community do we want to be? I think if Paul were here, not just through his words, but in person, I I think he'd ask the question, what kind of community do you want to be? One year, five years, 20 years. Do you want to be more like Houston or more like Christ? The choice is yours. You, You can either actively pursue Jesus as a community or you can actively drift into being more and more like Houston. What do you want? What do you want? Choice is yours. What do you want? Do you want to be a community that's more like a country club? I'm here to get my needs met or a community on the mission of Jesus where men, women, and children all around us who belong to my Lord find out through you. What do you want? What do you want? Choice is yours. We, we take communion every week, but before we jump into communion, I want to say one thing that I probably should have said during the sermon. If, if I ask the question, um, do, do we look more like the Heights? Do we look more like Houston than we do Paul and what the body of Christ is meant to? If you looked around and went, yeah, they do. Yeah, and when I look around, it's all I see is people. Then that's probably evidence, one, that Paul might be talking to you first. And maybe that should be repented of before we come to the table today. Let me pray. Father, you're a good father. You correct your children when we're in need of correction. And so, Lord, if we're in need of correction, would you correct us? Where, where there are places in us that need to be molded and shaped, both individually and communally, to be more like Christ, to, to be more of an imitators of Paul as Paul imitates Christ, then we are imitating one another and our city May we individually and collectively repent. And may we come home. Because listen, it's dangerous on the freeway. We know it. Would you bring us home? May we be a community. Where 10,000 years from now, we sit around a table and we hold up the good stuff with neighbors who are all around us right now who belong to the Lord who just don't know it yet. 
Would that mark us? Would we be more consumed with meeting the eternal needs of our neighbors than getting our temporal needs met? May that permeate all of our life, not just our church. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.